welcome to the Recover You podcast with Kyleen and Patrick Terhune. It's here that we talk about sex addiction, betrayal trauma, mental, emotional, and physical health, faith, and anything and everything needed to recover you to your most authentic self that God created you to be. Welcome everyone to another episode of Recover You. Today we are talking all things resources for betrayal recovery, addiction recovery, intimacy, and personal growth beyond. So that was a very nice introduction. Thank you. I was amazed at how you just strung all that together. That was really good. Top of mind. All right. Well done. So we are, if you are watching the video, We have a ton of books in front of us right now. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of our favorite reading resources, and we're going to go through them, let you know the names of them, the authors, and we're going to read a little section out of each book and kind of talk about why we like it and why we recommend it or why we don't recommend it. There are a couple in here that we don't particularly love and um, are very popular. And... um, Yes, we will definitely go into that. But uh, we also just want to throw out a general caveat here that, um, you know, there, there is no perfect resource. There's probably going to be something in every resource that we recommend that there's like, oh, there's a sentence here or a thought here that maybe we don't totally align with or don't totally agree with. But if we're recommending it, it's because we really feel like it is solid information. It's empowering information. It's going to put you on the right track. It's going to help you. And if we're not recommending it, it's because a majority of it is going to be harmful, not helpful. Um, Or there may be just enough landmines in there that we are concerned about recommending it as a resource. Yeah, and, and I think it's also important to to recognize the reason resources are really important in this. So much like anything that you want to get good at in your life, you have to devote some time to study. So if you want to become a golfer, you maybe get a coach and you watch videos on your swing and, and you go out and practice. Um, if you want to get a PhD in something, you have to go through the process. This is no different, and this is a this is a very impactful part of your of your life. So why not invest the time in learning about it and getting more resources and help shape your thinking in a positive way as you move through recovery? And that's why resources are really important. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this uh, earlier today, and that was that the rate of your recovery, not specifically including the impact that your partner has on it, but the rate of your personal recovery, if you were able to kind of separate that and make it individual, would be directly correlated to the intentionality that you take in your recovery. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of laying the foundation for us was actually getting the educational resources and surrounding ourselves with um, people and resources and tools that gave us the information that we needed so that we always knew what's the next step. Where do we go? Where's the next step? And that's not necessarily always a fluid, easy process. Like there's, you know, recovery, you'll hear so many people say this is not linear. You take five steps back, you feel like you've just got punched in the gut and you're back to, you know, three steps. But you do continue moving forward. It's kind of like a a slinky um, where, you know, you're you're in that spiraling motion a lot. So you feel like you're going up, down a lot. But if you spread that slinky out, you're really actually moving forward over time. Um, And so we just find that, making sure um, as much as possible, and this is why we are doing the work for you, that when you can find resources that are quality resources, it's going to shorten that time for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as opposed to like if, if you get resources that are unhelpful or reiterate patterns or thinking that is um, 
really harmful to recovery, then obviously that's going to slow things down. So we like things that are really empowering, that are clear, that give you steps, um, that um, promote personal responsibility for our recovery. And um, and a lot of these do just because of our faith background and because a lot of the resources out there come from a faith background. A lot of them do have that perspective. Um, I'm just looking around. I'm not sure that any of them don't have that as part of it. Some are more, some are less. So we can kind of talk into that as we as we go along. Yeah. But let's start with um, let's start with betrayal resources. Betrayal recovery. Part one. Part one. Betrayal okay. section one. Okay. <laughs> Part one section one. Mm-hmm. A. <laughs> A. Okay, so my favorite book to recommend is Intimate Deception by Dr. Sherry Keffer, and I recommend this to every single woman that is recovering from betrayal. I actually read this. Uh, very early on, a friend of mine had recommended it. And I remember hopping into our infrared sauna and basically every day I would hop into the sauna and read a chapter of this particular book. And that was the first couple months of, of my recovery. So this book really, what it's doing is it's teaching you how betrayal has impacted you. What are the, what are the effects of trauma? How can you support, um, your recovery journey? You know, it talks about CSATs. It actually, she gives several, um, I don't want to say quizzes, but um, assessments is maybe the right word. She has several assessments within this book to kind of just see where you are in your recovery and how significant the trauma has impacted you and um, all the symptoms that you may be experiencing uh, from this. So it's a really, really great book. I've really um, recommended it to a lot of people. I personally just think it's one of the, the best resources out there. So the section that I'm going to read to you is from page 122 from the chapter Unpacking the Effects of Early Trauma. So there's a section called Emotional Triggers and Trauma. She says, life hurts and relationships are complicated. Many women who are sexually, or sorry, many men who are sexually compulsive have post-traumatic stress from the impact of early emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. Add decades of shame from self-medicating with porn and illicit sex acts, and it's no wonder PTSD is connected to all types of addictions. These men use sex to deal with their unwanted feelings. Because most men don't wear their pain on their sleeves, their internal chaos is often deadened by silence, anger, control, or success. They stay defensive and disconnected from those closest to them. The constant fear of being caught in their own cycles of sexual deception keep men buried in shame. And um, in quotes here, she has them saying, I'm a fraud, I'm unwanted, I can't trust anyone, I can't trust myself, I'm weak and inadequate, I'm bad and worthless person, I'm shameful and don't deserve forgiveness, no one loves me as I am, especially if you knew me, no one can meet my needs, so I'll take matters into my own hands. So why would anyone get on this sexually compulsive detour? They are under the influence of three things, fear, dread, and an addicted brain. One, they often have a fear of intimacy. Two, they dread feelings. When emotions are triggered, they hit a panic button and sexually act out instead of dealing with uncomfortable thoughts or feelings that need to be faced. And three, their brains get hooked on neurochemicals like dopamine and endorphins, the feel-good chemicals, adrenaline, which gives them a rush, oxytocin, which bonds them to porn, and serotonin, which helps them relax. Simply put in the book, The Porn Trap, quote, the more orgasms you have with porn, the more sexually and emotionally attached to it you become, unquote. 
Many men have underlying brain chemistry issues that are either untreated or misdiagnosed. Things like depression, general anxiety, bipolar disorder, some type of ADD, post-traumatic stress, obsessive compulsive disorder, or sleep apnea. Some spouses try to self-medicate their mood disorders with alcohol, sex, drugs, tobacco, or marijuana. The sex addict and their brain repeatedly jump onto the dopamine fast track as a way of avoiding long-term issues of the heart. Mm. So, I mean, that's just like one tiny little section of this book and it's just packed with so much information and I love um talking about you know the underlying causes for addiction I think that's so important the thing that um I say over and over and over and over and over to betrayed spouses is that second point of how addicts dread feelings and that is you know if they are constantly relapsing the question is why and what is the emotion that that triggered that and sometimes they don't even know until they do a lot of deep work because they they are proactive and they're medicate, medicating it so much so that they didn't actually, they've never actually fully experienced the emotion. Right. So it's like the moment life becomes uncomfortable, well, I know what to do about that, I'm going to act out. And a lot of that is just unconscious. And so the part of the recovery process is then beginning to unwind that and unravel that and be able to figure out, okay, what what is this? Mm-hmm. And and actually also learning these these emotions aren't scary. This is just part of the human experience. And if I can breathe through this, if I can sit through this, if I can use different coping mechanisms, I can actually experience this emotion in its totality and know that it will pass. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, okay, well, I'm going to go do X, Y, Z um, and continue, you know, betraying my partner and betraying my own body and betraying myself. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and when in, in some of the literature and the stuff that I've seen on, on relapse and they like a relapse uh, uh, investigation that they encourage you to do. It never is about, well, what did you look at or anything like that? It never, it's like what happened one, two, three, four days prior and, and where did, you know, what were the emotions you were feeling? Right. Leading up to it. Yeah. Yeah, Because the thing is, it's not like relapse is not something where it's like, I had an image pop up into my head. I've been great for the past 30 years and all of a sudden I'm an addict. <laughs> that's, yeah, like, right. yeah. that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think there might, depending on the person situation, there may be some validity to actually analyzing what was it that you're doing because we've talked about this with you, for example, the fact that it was live versus pre-recorded or you know certain types mm-hmm. of acting out. Um, there was a relational component there that was like this when when you are engaging in an addiction, it is the attempt to fulfill a healthy need with an unhealthy version of that. Mm-hmm. So for you, your traumas and your pain really stemmed out of painful emotional um, and relational trauma. Right. And I think there was something to actual human live interaction that was a specific um, pain point for you mm-hmm. or, or a quote-unquote fulfillment within the addiction that was like more attractive than something else. Mm-hmm. So I, there's there's a little bit to that of like, okay, well, what is it that you're engaged in? Why is, why is it that, mm-hmm. right? When there's a million options, why did you choose that one? Because right. that, that in and of itself may shine a little bit of a light onto the patterns. Right, and, it, it, and the onto the wound itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the second book that I'm going to recommend is Rise by Misty Terrell, A Guide to Climbing Out of Betrayal Trauma. This book is amazing. I put it right up there with Intimate Deception. Unfortunately, I don't think it's had as much um, 
uh, marketing oomph behind it as intimate deception for whatever reason. Um, I know Dr. Sherry Keffer is like super popular and Misty is a woman that I actually met as I was going through um, a practitioner, uh, what do you call it? What was the, it was a certification for becoming trauma-informed basically um, and, a, and an abuse advocate. So it was mm-hmm. a, a one-year class where we would watch videos and read materials and take quizzes so that we were learning about abuse and addiction and all the different forms of abuse and legal action. And like, we were just becoming very trauma informed. And, um, it was really a great certification through give her wings Academy. And, uh, Misty was in the Academy with me at the time that I was going through it somehow, I think maybe in an introduction post or something like that mentioned that she had written a book. I was like, Oh my gosh, you did. And, uh, so I got it. And I was just blown away. It's mm. such a good book. Um, so excellent. Very similar to Intimate Betrayal in kind of walking you through the path to recovery. But one thing that I really particularly liked about her book uh, was that she stayed with her husband. So one of the things, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot, there were just not a lot of examples of couples that had made it being out there as, you know, leading and, and sharing mm-hmm. resources and, and all this kind of stuff. So she actually wrote a book from the perspective of she and her husband reconciled. It's a healthy reconciliation. Um, and she included him in the book, which I really loved. That was one of my favorite parts was at the end of every chapter, she asked specific questions that kind of applied to what the, the chapter content was. And her husband answered those. And for me, that was super encouraging because they were several years ahead of us in their journey. Um, they had hit a point that was um, something to work towards. And I actually saw a lot of you in his answers. So that for me was very encouraging mm-hmm. to, to see, okay, this, this feels kind of familiar and she's doing really well. They're doing really well. Maybe we can do really well. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would read um, maybe one of the questions that she asked him and then maybe another little chunk in a second here. So one of the questions she asked him at the end of a chapter was, why do you think it's important for a sex addict to receive counseling without his wife? And her husband replied, because addicts have to work out their own crap before they can work out their marriage. Mm-hmm. We just pause there and have a whole episode on that. But yeah. going to individual counseling has helped me dig deeper into the issues that contributed to my addiction, helped me identify abusive behaviors, and allowed me to grow into the man I desired to be. I had a, quote, dirty filter, unquote, that needed to be replaced. Cleaning our filters not only help us deal with the addiction, but will benefit the marriage as well. It has also made me a better dad. Sometimes I have to revisit my filter and clean it again. It will be a lifelong process. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important, and that's so true. If women that are going through this or betrayed spouses that are going through this, their issue is not your issue, but it, it in a way becomes your issue if you're staying in the marriage, mm-hmm. right? But you cannot control their recovery process. You can encourage them. You can set boundaries around what you will and will not tolerate in the marriage, and it may be one of those things where you say, hey, listen, you have to get onto a recovery path or we're not staying together. And you have um, uh, you have impact in that area. But ultimately, you can't control what they choose to do with that information, right? So they right. have to choose their own recovery and uh, take it really seriously. And it, in order to end up in a place where you guys have actual healthy dynamics, healthy communication, intimacy, trust, vulnerability, all that kind of stuff, it that, that requires individual work on both parts for that to happen after something that, you know, this traumatic on page 181, 
She also talks about um, page 180 and 181, examples of personal boundary statements. And so I'm just going to, after the boundary statement examples, I'm just going to read what she said about it. She said, I love statement number four, where you read the phrase, I get to choose when and how I will begin trusting again. I cannot express enough how this was such a huge part of my recovery. If you have someone in your circle encouraging you to share your feelings with your spouse when safety has not been established, come back to these statements and read them over and over. You are not required to open your heart to an unfaithful spouse until safety has been clearly established. This is one of those areas where uneducated individuals or professionals could potentially do more harm than good. They mean well by encouraging emotional intimacy with your spouse. And yes, that is the end goal, but you cannot accomplish it when safety hasn't been established. Our spouses have quite a bit of maturing that needs to take place before this can happen, which leads us right into the next section of relational boundary statements, which she, can, she continues. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really, that's huge because that's you know primarily the reason that we don't recommend quote unquote biblical counselors or people that are not familiar with betrayal people that are not familiar with trauma people that are not familiar with actual addiction um because you're going to get horrible advice like well you need to have more sex with your partner or you just need to trust each other more like really (laughs) have have you forgiven him have you forgiven him right have you made a decision to stay committed to the relationship um what relationship because the relationship that you know i was thinking i was in is not the relationship i was in yeah all right, so those are the two recommendations that I have for betrayal recovery. Uh, mm-hmm. One caveat, like I said, um, I would just sort of let you know, because I did get feedback from this. I recommended this publicly on social media, and someone did make a comment. Rise is very, very, very spiritual. Like, she talks about her Christianity and her mm-hmm. um, spirituality a lot. Yeah. So if you are not as comfortable with that, intimate deception has less, although I, she is a Christian. But um, I think it's more about the steps in the process um and rise is as well but mm-hmm. it's just it's very intertwined her the way she talks and the way she speaks and the way she thinks it's, it's very much in there mm-hmm. so just kind of to be aware of that yeah. yeah so for recovery those are my top two i love those um why don't you talk about or for recovery for betrayal why don't you give us some options for uh, okay the addiction? so um i have I have a few here, um, but one of the things that, that I thought was really important when I went through it is, or when I went through recovery is build, and you talked about it like personal development things, build or go after things that teach you about the addiction itself and the process, but then also work on some things that teach you about your mindsets and things like that. So I'm not sure how much time you're going to give me on this. But, uh, so I'm going to, you know, the, as we talk to some of them, you may hear a book and you're like, that has nothing to do with sexual addiction, but that's why, because it's about, it's about changing your mindset, shifting the way you view things. So the first one I have is Facing the Shadow by Patrick Carnes. Um, and Patrick Carnes, once again, he's, he's, he's like the original CSAT, I guess you can say. Um, I think he's the one that basically researched and created the idea of you know, recovering from sex addiction, right? right? Like he's right. the one that did all the foundational work yeah. for recovery. Absolutely. And he's done a lot of good work. His, his one, uh, his starting volume is facing the shadow, starting sexual and relationship recovery. And, and in it, which is really, really important, he lays out, cause you know, they talk about recovery taking two to five years. And so you, you start to wonder, well, what does that mean? What does it mean when I'm done? And he actually does a nice job of developing 30 tasks that you need to complete in order to get into recovery and so like here's here's the first seven so if you've been discovered or you've decided that you're going to go down this 
this, uh, this process of healing. I'll read the first seven to you. Um, break through denial, understand the nature of addictive illness. And that's what we're talking about. Understanding the nature of addictive illness, surrender to the process, limit damage from behavior. So stop, you know, stop continuing down that behavior, establish sobriety and sobriety is different than recovery, ensure physical integrity and participate in a culture of support. Is are his um, in order of like how that typically? I mean, generally speaking, I mean, are the thirty I, listed in? Yeah, I mean, some of them will happen concurrently, right, and things right. like that. But yeah, there's there's early tasks in it, like, right? Because right there, you said um, establishing sobriety, and mm-hmm. that is that is like the first three months. Like, right, that right. is very behavioral. That is mm-hmm. like shutting down the phones, working on you know getting sober, getting into sobriety, stopping the actions. You know, right, that's very right. like. Yeah. yeah, but then later on, it is more of the emotional stuff. Right. So you know, facing the shadow talks you through break, walks you through exercises on dealing with those first seven tasks, and then tasks eight through thirteen, which are not in this book, but are in his book, making making changes that last. Um, go through that again. Tasks fourteen to nineteen are in achieving balance in your life, the external tasks, and then the fi- final tasks are tasks nineteen through thirty, which are creating family recovery. And just wanted to kind of kind of provide the differentiation between the first seven tasks and the last seven. The last seven tasks are resolve issues with extended family, work through differentiation, succeed in intimacy, commit, recommit to your primary relationship, explore coupleship recovery, restore healthy sexuality, and involve family members in therapy. So so that's really interesting. So at the very end, it's like restoring the relationship. Right, right. So, you know, and, and, you know, within these tasks, and I'll throw a couple of restore financial viability, restore meaningful work, um, grieve losses, mm-hmm. um, establish health exercise and nutrition patterns. You know, mm-hmm. so th- there's a, it's, it was really helpful for me to understand and my therapist would occasionally say, Hey, pull that table out. Let's mm-hmm. talk about where we are. And you go, Oh wow. Okay. Well, I'm, I've, I've checked I've, off 20 boxes. Yeah. yeah I've yeah. checked <laughs> off quite, quite a few of these. And, you know, and so when you talk about two to five years, that's what happens. That's what you're trying to do is you're trying to move mm-hmm. through these and, and get a check block and not a superficial check block, but a deep check block. And facing the shadow is basically like a workbook that you progress through in tandem with therapy, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 It, it can be therapy guided. So yeah. Um, cool. Okay. So that's the first one. Um, the next one is a little bit to what you were talking about, and it's unwanted by Jay Stringer, and um, it's about how sexual brokenness reveals our way to healing. And the whole premise behind this whole book is um, what you were doing really is a window into how deeply wounded you are. And if you can find that linkage, then that will lead to a tremendous amount of healing for you. If you ignore that, then you know, you're going to have to really come to grips with that. And so, you know, one of the things that, uh, um, you know, that, that he talks about, and I just kind of brought this up there is, you know, through the book, he explores three central tenets. One, we are born with dignity. And so I think what he's trying to do is, hey, we're born with dignity. We, you know, we're not inherently shameful. You know, we've, we've been, you know, no matter who we are, we're born with dignity and you got to really believe that. The second one is honor and honesty, not blaming or minimizing. Both must be addressed within our family systems. Um, and then the final one is our sexual brokenness is not random. So, you know, that's where he's coming from is, is hey, what, you know, what it is that you were involved in is, um, is, is the, the part of your, of your woundedness. And so uh, it's it's a really really good book, and it, and it really I think it, I'm not sure if, I don't think it's been around too long, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's really you know and, and a lot of times guys don't want to go into that, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know, they, they don't want to talk about what they've done. They don't want to, they don't want to, you know, create that linkage. And you were talking about, you know, what I was di- addicted to, right? You know, I think it's, it's, um, uh, you know, because of the nature of, of the addiction, I was in control of that. So therefore no one could hurt me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, cause I've been hurt in, in relationship and those, those types you of things. You put yourself in a situation where you could communicate with women and they could only say nice things to you. Right, right. And logically, I understood the the linkage between paying and, you know what I mean? Like, like I, I understood the linkage between paying for that. It, it, it was a, it was a, it was an economic transaction. Yeah, but, consciously. But subconsciously, right. you were getting what you wanted out of it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. I was just looking at the, when you read that, um, my brain was like, wait, what did you say for number two? Honor and honesty not blaming or minimizing both must be addressed within our family systems. Um, yeah, huge because so many men there's when women say, how do I know if I should stay with my partner? There is a fairly from an outside perspective, easy way to tell if it's going to be healthy or not, if recovery is going to be possible. And that is, there's a four step thing. So the first one is if they're taking full responsibility. Mm-hmm. The second one is if they take responsibility, but they have some sort of excuse, then you're getting into some wishy-washy. They might be able to get there, but um, just be on guard with that. The third one is when they are uh, starting to blame you, that's getting into, this is less likely to actually end up in a healthy situation for a coupleship. And the last one is when they're just unempathetic, not taking any responsibility. And that's like very unsafe, like almost completely no chance of well, there's actually. No, there's no heart in the recovery. Right. Yeah. 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 And so what we, you know, what he's saying there is in that second, in that second point was not minimizing and not blaming. I mean, that's huge because right. if you're doing any of that, your <laughs> your chance of recovering as a couple in, in a healthy way mm-hmm. is very low. Yeah. Um, the third book I want to talk through is uh, called Pure Desire by Ted Roberts. So Ted Roberts is, is the guy who created the Conquer series that we talked about early on in, 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 our, in our podcast he took, series. And I think you explained this in a previous mm-hmm. podcast, but he took all of Patrick Carnes' yep. research and material for addiction recovery blended it with biblical principles right. and that that's his platform yeah so he writes this book and there's chapters by him there's chapters by his wife there's chapters by another gentleman who has worked with it um uh, and, and so there's a lot of really good um you hear a lot of the same stories that come out of the conquer group but it's just a really really good book there's a couple things i, I wanted to to just read um so the fantasy of pornography corrodes the soul with the lie that sexual pleasure is immediately and easily available. We don't have to deal with the challenge of relating to another human being. Oh my gosh, I heard um, Jordan Peterson talking about pornography use the other day. Mm-hmm. And he basically said that it was like the pornography takes, um, how do you explain it? Basically, in real life with real women, it takes effort. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's discomfort there and a high potential of being rejected we talked about that last night right so yeah. like there's a high there's a high potential of you know women say no to you that's if right you put yourself out there and that's just life or it's and, not and, crazy magical every single time right and right. In, a, in a healthy life in a healthy world you learn how to navigate that mm-hmm. you learn relating to people you learn how to put yourself out there and be okay with rejection and all this kind of stuff with pornography men are essentially taught i never have to be rejected and i can get sexual release anyway and it skews their perception of intimacy and what it actually takes to live a life 
interacting with other people in a healthy way. Right. And it, it takes down all the barriers. And then it, it really, men that look at pornography and deal with pornography have end up with or start with, don't know, maybe both, um, intimacy issues. Right. Because they don't actually know how to be seen and how to see other people because the primary focus is sexual outlet, not connection to another human being. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge right. issue with it. Right. Well, and the other nice thing about the book is is um, the church has, uh, as a body, has not done a good job on, on sexual um, sin. And so one of my earliest memories is, and if you think about this and how this shapes a young Christian boy's perception of sexual sin. So one of my earliest memories was the church I went to the um, worship pastor was having an affair with the piano player, right? Mm-hmm. So these things happen, right? You know, it is. And there was a congregational meeting that the kids were asked to leave. And I asked my mom about it later. And basically what happened is they brought them up on um, on stage on stage, and passed judgment on them. And they were both kicked out of the church, right? So as a little kid, and my mom told me what had happened. So the, as a little kid, what, what message do you think I received from that? Well, first of all, don't tell anybody what you're doing. Don't tell anybody <laughs> what you're doing, right? And and what's so interesting is, you know, we, on one of your other podcasts, you talked about the hierarchy of sin. It's the only sin like that in the church that, they, that they've done that with. They don't bring people up there for mm-hmm. greed or envy mm-hmm. yeah. or any of those things, right? But it's the single one. So it's a horrible thing that, you know, the church has just done a lot to... to not intentionally, but to have fed you know this this whole thing. So he, he actually has a statement in here, which I think is really good. And he says, it usually takes a crisis of experiencing the destruction and consequences of wrong choices um, before there's a willingness to take the appropriate steps for healing and real freedom. And that happens with a, with a lot of people who are in this. They, they either you know, lose their ministry or they lose their jobs or they lose their marriage or you know, there's financial difficulties. And so there's a major crisis. Um, and you said, and it said, it takes that crisis for them it to. It takes be that change. crisis for before there's a willingness to take appropriate steps. So, like in my case, I was taking steps, right? But they, you could argue, they weren't appropriate before that, I discovered. Before you discovered, right? Once that happened, and with your help and with the, you know, the help of others, they were now appropriate mm-hmm. steps towards moving forward. When our church began to deal openly with these issues without shaming people, um, they, they realized that this was a safe place to become honest with their sin and addictive behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a, a healthy way to do that and there's an unhealthy way to do that. And uh, that's obviously what that's talking about. The shame-inducing way where it's public humiliation and then you're kicked out of the community that is supposed to support you through recovery. Mm-hmm. That's not the way to do it. Yeah. Nobody wants to be that person. And like you were saying, being a kid or just being another adult, watching some man stand. And this happened to me in my church growing up. I, as a young child, saw a man stand up in front of church and say, I had um, an affair. I cheated on my wife. And it's like, what is the point of that? Mm-hmm. You're just, it's the church version of the public stocks. Like, what yeah. is the point of that? Yeah. It doesn't so promote their healing. Yeah. It doesn't help them actually get into recovery. It doesn't actually do anything to heal the relationship. All it does is shame them and make mm-hmm. other people yeah. view them negatively. That's right. And maybe even like be afraid of them, right? But then there's another way of, um, you know, hey, we're going to have appropriate boundaries. So for example, if you're in a leader perspective, leadership position in the church you're not going to be a leadership position while you are in this struggle that's right Uh, and we are going to help you get through this you stay in the community we have um resources set up for you maybe we have 
therapy scholarships set up for you. We have groups within the church set Mm -hmm. up for you, whatever that is. But we're not going to shy away from this. We're not going to shame you for it. It's no different than anything else. We're going to help you through it. We're going to love you through it. And then at the time at which you are living in freedom and recovery, which is what the church should actually be promoting, in total freedom and recovery, you are welcome back into any position Mm -hmm. that you're qualified for. And actually, if you think about it, somebody who goes through recovery and is really into recovery uh, the amount of help that they can bring Absolutely. to a lot of people in this whole thing is is yeah. exponential. I think I think churches like they end up on one end of the spectrum though, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're either all accepting and it's like there's no boundaries whatsoever. We're not going to kick people out. We're not going to um, boot them out of a leadership position. We're just going to be like, oh, porn, that's not that bad. Okay, well, come to my office if you need support with that, but we love you anyway. Or, you know, what? You're looking at that? I am too, but I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm going to shame you in front of the church, right? Like there's those. And yeah. it's somewhere in the middle of, hey, there are healthy boundaries. We right. don't want you, um, you know, being the youth pastor while you're really struggling with a, seven times a week porn addiction and acting out um, because that impacts your leadership quality, right? It impacts your ability to be present, impacts the way you think about things, the way you view things and the way you will communicate things. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean we don't love you. That doesn't mean we think you can't heal. That doesn't mean that, you know, we want to throw you out to the wolves. Like good luck with that out in the world, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If there's no healing, then you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're condemned to do it again. So it it does actually uh, bring up the next book, which is safe by Nick Stumbo. So the book is safe, S-A-F-E. And it's creating a culture of grace in a climate of shame. And that is one of the uh, hosts of Pure Desire yeah, podcast, yeah, right? Right. He's the executive director of Pure Desire, and he's one of the co-hosts of, of the Pure Desire podcast. But I think this is, you know, this first uh, paragraph in chapter four is really good. He says, in this book, we're trying to discover how to become a safe place and safe people where it's okay to not be okay. A place where we don't feel the pressure or the need to get all cleaned up and dressed up or to put on a happy face or a performance mm-hmm. so that we can be accepted. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the, the book is great about, you know, it's just it's a really powerful book on really changing that dynamic that we just talked about. Well, he's cool because he was a pastor and then he jumped into um, being a uh, what, what was his title at Pierre Sire? Executive director. Executive director. I mean, basically, he more or less makes all the decisions there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so he went from pastoring a church, but also dealing with his own um, pornography addiction and acting out and stuff like that, to actually leading an organization, stepping into an organization that helps with recovery. And so he does have a passion of like, how do we get this into churches? How do we teach churches a culture of recovery in the healthiest way possible. So I, I love hearing him talk about that because I think he has such a healthy perspective on it. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, I um, uh, there's two more. Um, one I'm not done with yet, but I want to talk about it. So the first, the, the one of them is clean and it's by a, a Doug Weiss, PhD, and it's a proven plan for men committed to sexual integrity. And I, and I think what's really powerful about his book and most of this book is you talk about it openly. You just get it out there and talk about it. And he tells a story about how he he was he he keeps getting asked to come back and speak to a church, and so finally he he asked the pastor, he's like, "Why do you keep asking me to come back?" And the pastor asked the men in, in the group that have been there, they're like, "Hey, when's the last time you all either mm-hmm. masturbated or looked at anything?" And it was before, or it was right after the last time that Doug had been there. So it's been become part of their healing because mm-hmm. they're hearing those principles, and so. The whole point, you know, behind this, and it's called the book is called Clean, um, but it's they they really um, he's he's a big proponent. Of, hey, you got to talk about it. 
you got to get it out there. You got to talk about it, and it's re- really powerful. Okay, and the last one, and then in as far as the uh, the sexuality pieces, and I'm not done reading it yet, but I'm about three chapters in, and it's really good. And it talks about reclaiming um, uh, the definition of sex, of healthy it sex. It's called Rethinking Sexuality. Thank you by uh, Julie Slattery, S L A T T E R Y. Um, rethinking sexuality and it talks about the notion of sexual discipleship so that all the examples we gave in the church is they wouldn't talk about it right mm-hmm. so who talks about sex the porno- pornography industry TV, our society media. they're give, they're doing the but sexual they don't talk discipling. about it they just promote an unhealthy version right, of it yeah. right so imagine if and, and so that's where people are getting their quote-unquote education right. which is horrible. Right. so she's saying hey we can we can turn that around and that's why people are so confused and and you know, with everything and so full of shame and things like that, is there is a healthy definition of sexuality that that Christ has given to us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she does a really, you know, just three chapters. She's really broken it down well. So cool. I, I would, I would recommend you do that. Rethinking sexuality. Oh, cool. Well, that will lead nicely into the other one. So the next segment. So we did um, uh, betrayal recovery, addiction recovery, and so now we're kind of getting into healthy intimacy. So that one would be great to kind of piggyback onto The Great Sex Rescue by Sheila Reguar. So we've mentioned it several times already, so I'm Mm -hmm. not going to pull up the same chart that we've talked about. But the um, subtitle here is The Lies You've Been Taught and How to Recover What God Intended. So it's basically like all the purity culture and the lies about sexuality in the church and what healthy sexuality actually does look like. And so she's kind Mm -hmm. of busting through all of those myths and creating the reality of what it should be. And um, so she is amazing. She has really, I think, led the way in terms of talking about the negative impact in uh, purity culture and all that kind of the stuff. The messaging that's mm-hmm. harmful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I'm just going to read a little segment from, from The Great Sex Rescue here. Many women live in sexless marriages because the husband prefers pornography or he's used porn so much for so long that he suffers from erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, or delayed ejaculation, all of which increase with porn use. Without the stimulation of pornography and masturbation, many men are unable to maintain an erection or reach climax. Other men have so trained their bodies to react to sexual stimulation quickly that they have no ability to last very long. And yet, the Christian resources we reviewed rarely mention it in conjunction conjunction with porn. Perhaps it is because they were written before the research on this was conducted. Large-scale studies on porn use and erectile dysfunction did not appear until after 2006 when porn sites and high-speed internet became more widespread. Many best-selling evangelical books then have passed their best before date because they were written too long ago. Listen to these letters from women for whom the simply have more sex solution feels like a slap in the face. I'm not going to read those. But basically, the the church, you know, sometimes will say just that's the answer. You need to have more sex. So how the church is teaching on porn can affect a couple. Let's follow the marriage of Jared and Melissa, a composite of so many couples we've heard from. As is the case for many millennials, the prevalence of internet porn when Jared was growing up meant that by the time he got married, he had already been using porn for 12 years. When he's getting married, Jared believes, finally, I'll be able to get over this because surely sex is going to make it so much easier to quit. And that's super common. Uh, The idea of that is super common. And during the honeymoon stage, his struggle indeed subsides. But all too soon, what was new and exciting starts to become routine. They stop having sex as frequently. She gets pregnant. He starts taking on more responsibilities at work. They spend less time together. 
He finds himself alone late at night while his wife sleeps. In his boredom and the stress of everyday life, he reverts back to what has been his habit for most of his life. He immediately feels ashamed, but that quickly turns to defensive anger. Jared finds that on days when he has sex, he doesn't feel the need to look at porn as much. And soon the days when they don't have sex begin to feel like Melissa is personally attacking him. She has the key to his struggle and refuses to give it to him. She doesn't even need to have sex. A simple hand job will do, but Melissa doesn't seem to care. At the same time, Jared's men's group starts going through every man's battle. Don't worry, we'll come to that in a minute. He hears that wives need to have sex with their husbands so their husbands don't succumb to temptation. Jared feels seen and understood. See, he says to Melissa, we need to have more sex because I want to be faithful to you vomit vomit you can't possibly understand my struggle because you're a woman why can't you just do this for me melissa feels like she's been (laughs) it's horrible i hate this stuff (laughs) melissa feels like she's been punched in the gut she's pregnant working full-time keeping house and she's still not enough for him now every time they have sex and she can picture all she can picture is her husband watching porn Mm. sex is fast quick and to the point even when he wants to try something for her she can't stomach it because she wonders if he learned it from porn Eventually, Melissa's had enough. She hates sex and she is in despair. Her dream of a loving, faithful marriage has been destroyed. She realizes the only people who will ever really love her are her kids, and she now turns to them with her attention. Hurt and fed up, she tells Jared, just take care of yourself then, since she feels he's simply been masturbating into her for the last decade anyway. Mm. I think that's, I'll repeat that because I think that is a huge problem in marriages that essentially what's happening is they are using their wife's body to get off. And that's it. She's just a another replacement, a better replacement from hand or from porn. Mm-hmm. And he's just masturbating inside her body. That's disgusting. Jared doesn't want that, so he brings it up to his pastor that his wife told him to masturbate instead of having sex. The pastor berates her. Don't you know sex is a gift from God in your marriage? Melissa hears the words, but they don't penetrate. She has been reduced to a physical receptacle for Jared to orgasm into in order to keep him from temptation. If that's what sex is, she's not having any of it. Go, Melissa. Jared has systematically destroyed his wife's libido by allowing his porn addiction to infiltrate his marriage, all in the attempt to keep it out of it. We doubt that Jared and Melissa's experience is what those writing the books and articles intended, but this is what we have heard over and over from both men and women. This is what we saw in our surveys. This is the result of telling women without sex, he'll watch porn and telling men you need her to be your methadone. How would Jared and Melissa's story have been different if instead of expecting Melissa to cure his problem, Jared took responsibility himself. You don't build a great sex life by telling a woman that unless she becomes wholly available to her husband in such a vulnerable way, he will betray her by turning to pornography. Wow. Yeah, I want to vomit like 10 times reading that. I know. It's, and by the way, the go Melissa, that was you putting yeah, it in. Yeah, go Melissa. Yeah, that was yeah. you. That's not in the Because it in, said if that's what sex is, she's not having it. Go Melissa. Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing. Women need to have, you know, a high standard. But the thing mm-hmm. is, they're taught in society that they can't. That's just how men are. Yeah. Boys will be boys. Right. Your body is there to please him. It's not for you. Right. 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 And even, and, and we just briefly mentioned this, but church church culture teaches you that, right? Like it's, It does. It's incredibly disgusting. Um, so a couple things that were mentioned in here, we will get to it. They are in another book where, where a lot of this garbage is promoted. But this book, The Great Sex Rescue, they call out this garbage mm-hmm. and they teach a better way and they talk about um, what sexuality should look like and it just busts the myth of, you know, if you're raised in purity culture, if you've heard these lies, if you've heard these myths, what is it actually? 
um, and what should it be. It's so, a great book, and really and, and I I use some. I mean, we talked about the graphs, but I use some of those graphs with in, in the groups as well because it's it's a it's a um, her her work is very empowering for the guys too. Because, mm-hmm. you know, guys need to hear positive messages. Yeah. You know, the ones that are really interested in healing. Actually, everybody needs to have a positive message. But mm-hmm. the ones that are really interested in healing need to understand that, hey, there's a path out. All right. Why don't you give us some options for personal development? Okay. So I have four. And and the first one I'm going to talk about, I actually don't have here on, on the desk. But it's one of my favorite books of all time. And the book is actually called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willing. So the Oh, let's talk about this because yeah, this you read great. it before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah so I read this I read this when I was in in, uh, in in my habit. And so it shows you the the book is really and and he was a he was an ex Navy SEAL and he served in, in Iraq and he commanded in Iraq. It's just a really kind of powerful guy. If you ever get a chance, he's out there on social media. His name is Jocko Willing. Um but the book basically says, hey, if you're having a hard time communicating with people, then you need to kind of reapproach things like it's always up to you. Stop being a victim, essentially, is the, is the message of the book. And so when I was in major denial in the seat of my addiction, I read that book and it helped me in, at work and it helped me in, in a lot of different areas. I mean, it really was a helpful book. But it, uh, I think the wrong message it sent was, hey, you've got this addiction, figure it out on your own. And so I no, think. No, no, no. That's the message you interpreted. Interpreted. That's yeah. the, I don't think that's actually no, the message. No, it's, it's not the message you sent. Yeah. That's the message that I received, right? right. It, it, when you were cloaking it in shame mm-hmm. and all of that stuff, that's the message that, that I received. Right. When I was discovered and entered into the recovery work, I think that message was paramount. To helping me not do my best not to gaslight, do my best not to take full responsibility for the consequences of what had happened. And I, you know, it'd be interesting to ask you that question, you know, along those lines, but it became much more meaningful in the context of a reduction in shame, an increase in honesty, and that sort of thing. So I, I would, I always recommend people read that book, Extreme Ownership. Yeah, and I think based on what you just said, make sure that you're interpreting it with the lens of yes, personal responsibility, but personal responsibility does not mean not asking for help. So whether that's you're in the addiction right now or you're moving through recovery right now and you need to communicate to your partner or whatever it is, part of taking personal responsibility is actually having the guts to ask people for help when you need it. And so maybe just because of the way that he communicates in the book and the stories he tells, maybe that isn't communicated or maybe that just isn't what you had interpreted. But just for the purposes of today, that book is a great resource for saying, hey, I'm responsible for my life. I'm responsible for the choices I make. If I want something to change, it's up to me to do it. And we're just going to put that caveat on there that during recovery, that requires community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I, I think that's a great book, and I think for anything you do, it should always be something. I, I, it's a must-read for me. It's for anybody who's in leadership positions or anything like that, it's a must-read. Um, the next book is Ordering Your Private World by Gordon McDonald, and this was actually a book that was given to me by um, the one pastor of our church you know, shortly after this happened, and it was a really great resource. And is it about pornography? Well, a little bit, um, but it, it really kind of goes into like getting your private life in, in so it talks about developing a journaling habit and developing a devotional habit. And, and so this is, this is, um, uh, uh, this is actually a, a pretty good um, comment here. So uh, when the inner garden is under cultivation and God's spirit is present, harvests are regular events. The fruits, 
things like courage, hope, love, endurance, joy, and lots of peace. Mm -hmm. Unusual capacities for self-control and the ability to discern evil and to ferret out truth are also reaped. So think about that when your inner garden is under cultivation, and he, and he really goes through how you know what are the what are his recommendations on doing things like that. So mm. it's it's a really safe book. What was that book where um, it had like the four quadrants of you? Do you remember the name of that? Because that was a really good one. I think that you really liked too. But it was like taking those four quadrants of your life, and it, there was like spiritual and. You don't remember? I Do you know what I'm talking I'm about? I do no? not. No? Okay, never no, mind. Ignore no. that. Scratch that. Yeah, yeah scratch that. <laughs> um, the next book is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It mm-hmm. is a wonderful book, and I know it's used by a lot, but it's a little bit like the extreme ownership thing. It was written by a Holocaust survivor. Um, you know, he lost his wife in the Holocaust. He lost his, his you know, the rest of his family in the Holocaust. But he really put it down there. And, and essentially what it is, 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 you know, when you have purpose in your life, it really really brings you know brings a lot to it but he recounts his own uh, holocaust story mm-hmm. um and it's just a fantastic book so you know victor frankel he was a psychiatrist i think mm-hmm. um but really really famous famous book so man's search for meaning it's a you know sometimes you you will read a book when you're in addiction and it won't mean as much and then when you're going through the crisis you read it again and it really brings out brings out a lot for you. yeah these are more personal development and self like mentality books and stuff like that to kind of learn how to grow mentally and spiritually and so just keeping in mind like with the timeline of recovery we highly recommend that when you're in the first phase of establishing safety and getting the education that you're putting your primary focus towards the resources in the previous episode mm-hmm. like the things that are actually going to give you the tools and resources to establish recovery and um, getting into therapy and group and all these things that you're going to start working on your emotions and then you when you're kind of really when that's really established and you have a firm foundation for moving forward in life you can continue looking at those resources and then you can also continue by looking into things like this where it's like okay let me this isn't specifically about addiction this isn't specifically about a betrayal this isn't specifically about recovery mm-hmm. but this is something that's going to help me grow my mindset it's going to help me look at things from a different perspective right. it's going to help me learn about um different philosophies and ideas and and those types of things i think that's really really important um we just want to make sure that you know it, it would be concerning to me if somebody was you know coming into a betrayal support group and said, well, the, the primary book that my husband is reading right now as a part of his addiction recovery is this book and it's a self-growth book, right? right like right. personal development yeah. book versus like an actual addiction recovery book. Like yeah. I think it's really, the timing is going to be important, but there's value for all of it. Right, yeah. And and this is a great, um, of course, remember his perspective is from being in, in, in a, in a, uh, in a uh, concentration, concentration camp. camp. So, this 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 uh, phrase or this this passage is pretty good. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Mm. So I think that I mean that speaks about the power of hope mm-hmm. in our psyche, impacting our physical ability right. to have resiliency in life. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that, I mean, that goes into everything that we talk about with recovery. That is, you have to have a, an empowering mindset. Right. Because if you don't have hope, if you, I mean, if you believe wholeheartedly, going back to our last episode, 
um, with the idea of every man's battle. If you believe wholeheartedly that this is just something that I'm going to deal with, I'm an addict and I, you know, or on the betrayal side, right? Like, well, I'm never going to recover. My marriage is always going to be subpar. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm never going to be beautiful enough. I'm never going to be, have enough self-confidence. Well, you essentially will live into the deepest beliefs that you have because your mind will not allow you to accomplish something you don't believe is possible. Mm -hmm. So if you are living into hope and a vision of the future and you believe that there is something else out there, you will find and move towards that as a reality. And so that's where these resources come in so powerfully because it's like, let's get exposed to different ideas. Let's get exposed to different realities with people who have different experiences than mine who have accomplished amazing things. Let me convince my subconscious that this is possible and that I can move towards a life that I want. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I think, I think, you know, all of these books help you do that. Mm -hmm. You understand the addiction and then you start to reframe your whole life, you know, under that, under that, the belief that you were an addict and how do you, and understanding why you were there and and how do you move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, The last book that I would recommend is Winning the War in Your Mind by Craig Rochelle. So Craig Rochelle is a, he's a mega pastor actually um, of Life Church, which is I believe out of Oklahoma. But his his church created the YouVersion Bible app. So, oh, did it really? Yeah. Oh, so, wow. And he's just a great guy. He's he's he's, he's uh, he does a leadership podcast. And if you're into leadership, I would recommend you, you you listen to that as well. But he actually struggled with with pornography as well, and he he, he talks about yeah, he it. He talks about it openly, and and so it's just a really you know it talks about seeking truth, reframing all of those things, but it's just a really relevant book. So Winning the War in Your Mind by, uh, and basically it's re- Winning the War in Your Mind, Change Your Thinking, Change Your Life. Mm. So those are mine. Awesome. Well, mine are pretty short, actually. Both, well, both of them are from... Um, That's because you're developed. You're <laughs> self-developed. No, I mean, I spent a lot of my reading time reading the Betrayal Recovery books. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, I used to read a lot. But as an adult, I really haven't. And so I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, so maybe that'll be kind of what I, I wrap up with for my resources mm-hmm. are some really amazing podcasts. Yeah. But um, I listen to a ton of podcasts. But but these are actually um, some re- two books by Joyce Meyer. And uh, one is called Battlefield of the Mind. And one is called um, The Mind Connection. And both are the idea that when you struggle with your thoughts and with your mind and um, the way you perceive the world. And and I actually read the first, which one was it? The Mind Connection maybe first back in 2015 or 16, the first time I experienced intrusive thoughts and they were really terrifying to me and they were on loop and I just really didn't know what to do and they really scared me. And reading her book really helped me because it, it made me feel like I could take control of that. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it is her, a lot of these books or uh, the way she kind of thinks about things is basically that you can absolutely take control of your thoughts and your mind. And I think that's super applicable to both the betrayed and the addicted in recovery because with with the betrayed, when our nervous system is threatened, we go into fight or flight and we end up in hypervigilance and, and things are super activated. And some of the symptoms of that is that our mind is constantly spinning and our thoughts are constantly looping and we go and we go to bed and we, you know, the conversations of the day and the discoveries of the day are all on replay. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, the images and the, 
things that I've created in my mind based on the stories you've told me. Like now I'm, I'm hyper-focused on that. Right. And, um, there may be, uh, intrusive thoughts because of insecurities that have now, um, been accentuated because of the betrayal. And now I'm constantly looping that I'm not pretty enough. I'm not, um, you know, good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not whatever. Right. And so really for the betrayed, filling our mind with resources that are empowering to who we are as a human being, but also that like, we don't have to give those thoughts any credit. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course for, uh, the addicted, you never really struggled with this, but I think a lot of addicts do. And that is the intrusive thoughts of the addiction, Mm -hmm. um, images that pop up and, um, things like that. And so, having tools and resources and and even just the belief. I think the belief itself is so powerful that this isn't the way I have to live. I don't have to give any credibility to this thought. This thought is not who I am. That's a really important one. This thought is not who I am, right? This thought does not reflect anything about me. It's a thought that popped in my head. You can't always control the thoughts that pop into your head, right? but you can choose to pattern interrupt. You can choose um, what value you give the thought. I think Mm -hmm. that's really important. Yeah, And so you predetermine all right, these are the things that are, um, you know, typically pop up for me, or these are the things that I struggle with. I'm not going to give that any value. I'm just not, I'm not going to give it any weight. It doesn't mean anything about me and I'm going to move on. And you create a little strategy around that. And so books like this can kind of support you in creating that mindset. I think I would say, Mm -hmm. uh, so this is from battlefield of the mind. Just a little section here. The devil is a liar. (laughs) Isn't he though? Jesus called him the father of lies and of all that is false. He lies to you and me. He tells us things about ourselves, about other people and about circumstances that are just not true. He does not, however, tell us the entire lie all at one time. He begins by bombarding our mind with cleverly devised patterns of little nagging thoughts, suspicions, doubts, fears, wonderings, reasonings, and theories. He moves slowly and cautiously. After all, well-laid plans take time. Remember, he has a strategy for his warfare. He has studied us for a long time. He knows what we like and what we don't like. He knows our insecurities, our weaknesses, and our fears. He knows what bothers us most. He is willing to invest any amount of time it takes to defeat us. One of the devil's strongest points is patience. Now, let's just caveat this because um, I'm going to say whether it's the devil, <laughs> actually, or a demon or a spiritual warfare or just your brain, that's how it works. Mm-hmm. So you, I, here's one of the things. I don't actually think you have to believe that that's the devil doing that. I really don't. I don't think you have to think that, that it's demonic warfare implanting these thoughts. The reality is sometimes our brains come up with its own stupid thoughts. Like that's just the way our brains work. Mm-hmm. And it, it will come up with things that we are insecure about, we are fearful of, we are scared of, um, we don't want to think, all this kind of stuff. Like sometimes you'll be driving down the road and just visualize, you know, uh, driving right off the cliff. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, right. Right? Your brain comes up with like worst case scenarios. Like there's reasons that it does that, but we're not going to talk about that today. So again, the idea is, these are patterns that happen and you can learn how to interrupt them and yeah, viewing them however you need to view them. Cause I think for some people thinking, Oh, this is spiritual warfare is empowering because then they can go, well, I have God, I have the Holy spirit. I have scripture. I can pick yeah. this and it gives them a lot of confidence for other people. The idea of spiritual warfare and this being a demon whispering in their ear may throw them into a spiral of fear. Mm-hmm. Right. And that may be incredibly disempowering for them to, so to just understand like, Hey, my brain comes up with these, they have no value. Either way, the reality is the way you respond to it is the way you have control over it. Mm-hmm. So whether it's the devil or whether it's your brain doesn't really matter. Right. 
if you don't give it any value, it has no power over you. And that is the most empowering thing. Mm -hmm. If you say, this means nothing about me, I know who I am, this thought does nothing to me, it doesn't stress me out, it doesn't cause me to do any behavior, I'm in control of my actions, this means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. Well, that's comforting to you if it's your brain. And if it's the devil, he learns very quickly that you're not going to do anything about it. I know the one thing I heard relative to that that was very empowering to me was, um, well, we've already won. And so, like, oh, my gosh, I'm being tempted. Like, well, no, we've already won. So you already know the outcome. Mm-hmm. And so you can have that confidence to mm-hmm. say, all right, I know what you're trying to do. And it's 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 no big deal because I've already won. And nice try. Right. And then you just move on. Well, and that's the reality. If, if it is spiritual warfare, like, in my mind, it doesn't really matter. Because if it is spiritual warfare... All you, uh, all the devil needs to see is that it doesn't have an impact on you for that to end. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you hold the line long enough. You demonstrate that it does nothing to your nervous system. It doesn't stress you out. Right. You're not going to take action in it. You're not going to fold. Mm-hmm. Then it goes away. Right. You know. Um, so to me, it's like it doesn't really matter. the The reality is that you need to feel empowered in your response to it. Mm-hmm. You can't feel fear by it. The more fear you have the more it has power over you. And just psychologically on a brain level, the more fear you have, uh, the more it loops in your brain Mm -hmm. (laughs) and causes the exact opposite effect of what we want to happen. So as soon as you take the power out of the thought, it it diminishes and and can go away. And I think that's... That's that's what's been very helpful for me, mm-hmm. you know, because we do. We ha- we're humans. We have like these random things pop oh, in. We have fears and anxieties and and all kinds of stuff. And sometimes we're not well fed. Well, and let me, and, you know, like yeah. it'll it'll create a chemical thing or whatever. And let me just tell you, for anybody listening, if you have the most random thought that pops up into your head and you think I'm a horrible human being, who would ever think that thought? Let me tell you, millions of other people have had that thought. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, like I don't care how scary it is. I don't care how weird it is. People have weird thoughts. It just pops up. It doesn't mean anything bad about you. What me- makes a difference is what you do with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 100% of the time. Right. And what meaning you give to that thought. Okay, so in the mind connection, which is another variation on the theme that she wrote about the same stuff, um, she she talks about this a little bit too, about the power of our thoughts. So I will even go so far as to say that I believe people can feel the impact of our thoughts even though they don't know exactly what we are thinking. 100%. You walk into a room, you feel a vibe, right? Mm -hmm. I believe that. I frequently tell this story of a woman who wrote to me telling me how she had a plant in her home that was not very attractive. And each time she walked by it, she thought, this is really an ugly plant. It looked worse and worse as the days went by and it finally died. After hearing my teaching on the power of thoughts, she remembered the plant and thought perhaps she had influenced it in some way. So, yes. Have you ever heard of the, I mean, you hear about the rice experiments where people put the rice in the jar and they label one love and they label one hate and they literally do nothing differently except they speak love to one and they speak hate to another. I actually did this on um, a retreat that I went to recently. Our mentors gave us roses. They said, I want you to 
basically write down anything that you would say, any of the negative thoughts you, and beliefs you say about yourself. What mm-hmm. are you telling yourself? Right, like, I'm right. fat, I'm ugly, I'm not mm-hmm. enough, I'm stupid, whatever. Yeah. Write it down. I want you to read that to rose number one. I want you to read, read that to, and send all of your negative energy to that planet. And then I want you to put a rose in this other vase and I want you to send loving, positive energy to it. What are all the things you wish you would say to yourself or mm-hmm. even say to somebody else, right? Like, you're yeah. amazing, you're strong, you're powerful. Like, I want to, st- I want to step into these things, right? Mm-hmm. These roses changed. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it doesn't like what is different. You put them in the same type of glasses with the same type of water on the same day and you see them shift. Yeah. And for some people, the rose would droop or whatever. Or sometimes the petals would fall off the negative, one, whatever it was. Right. That's crazy. Yeah, and crazy. I think it's directly the, the, the intensity of the emotions that you are putting towards yourself are directly going to correlate to the mm-hmm. level of negativity and the symptomology and the physiological reaction of your body breaking down. Yeah. Right. Um, thoughts are powerful. Very powerful. And I think to kind of wrap this concept up as we go through recovery, it is incredibly important. The thoughts we think about ourselves, the thought Mm -hmm. we think about our partner and the thoughts we think about what we want our life to look like. It's so easy when something traumatic and horrible and painful happens to us to wallow and loop the thoughts of my life sucks. It's hopeless. I'm in despair. How can anything ever happen that's good in the future? Um, You know, we all get caught up in that. I mean, you and I were just talking about this last night. We had um, kind of a rough couple weeks and um, month and some some emotional blocks and some things have been happening. And, um, you know, we do all kind of hit a wall and get stuck sometimes and be like, well, I want to move forward. Is that ever going to happen? Right. But Um, I think in those moments, the important thing is to ground yourself in the present moment. Where am I now? And then if you need to look back on the future or the past and say, how far have I actually come? And and you do Mm -hmm. this with me a lot. Uh, you're like, look, is it better than it was last year? Is it, are we better? Are we further along than we thought we would be, Mm -hmm. you know, at this point last year? Right. And we say, oh my gosh, yeah, we've like blown through all the, we are so much further than we thought. right? Right. And we still have further to go. Right. And so um, everybody is going to have these days or these weeks where they're struggling with feeling like you're hitting a wall. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's really important is to hold the vision, to create the vision and to hold the vision. And then anytime you're up against the wall, reaching out for support, being vulnerable and talking about it. And this is I mean, we just went through this last night. You were processing some stuff. I actually brought some things up and then you verbally let things some things out and started processing things that you Mm -hmm. didn't even really know you were holding in and so those conversations are really important because then you can kind of help each other work through the thoughts what is real what is not real Mm -hmm. where are we right now where are we going what does that look like Um, what are my fears what are my insecurities you know things like that so again kind of reiterating through this process of holding the vision communicating it being vulnerable having community through the recovery process right. and um and really trying to capture as much as possible the negative thoughts the negative beliefs we have about ourselves because yeah. if we don't think we're capable of something we'll never achieve it well and, and i think you know a couple you know to break it down even further um if if in your life you're saying things like well i guess this is the best it's gonna be right or um, this will never change, or um, I will never get past this. That's a, a, a good indicator of a 
lack of vision or in that moment you're activated and you're not really thinking of your vision. Other statements that'll get you through is, hey, we're gonna get through this. This is not where we're gonna end up. Mm-hmm. You know, those are like positive momentum forming statements that, that really help you move past the tough times that are inevitably gonna be there. Yeah, well, you just touched on affirmations a little bit. And I think um, we'll just kind of wrap this. I'll, I'll just kind of walk people through how to create an effective affirmation because a lot of people are like, affirmations suck, right? Because I feel crappy right now and I'm trying to tell myself I'm amazing, right? And my brain just does not believe that. And you might have even experienced this through, you know, addiction recovery too, where it's like, okay, I'm at square one. I feel like a horrible human being. I can't tell myself that I'm an amazing husband right now, right? Like, there's no way oh, that's that right. my brain yeah. will believe that. I remember uh, hearing my mentor say, I'm at six years. Mm-hmm. You know, I was day two. Yeah. You're at six years. Yeah. That'll never happen. Right. So what do you do when you're trying to install these new pathways in your brain of positive beliefs and positive thinking, especially if you're somebody that's really routed consistently in your life to the negative? Affirmations are important there, but more specifically affirmations that are actually going to work for your brain. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you take, what's the ultimate goal? Okay. The ultimate goal is like, like, let's use your recovery as an example. The ultimate goal would have been something like, I am a man that is living in full integrity and I haven't relapsed in 10 years and I'm mm-hmm. fully present, I'm fully engaged, and I love my life, right? Let's just say right. that, right? Yep. But you couldn't say that on day two. <laughs> but if that's the vision and that's where you're moving forward, you can create an affirmation that says, I can, I'm working towards, I am doing this daily, right? And so what is something that your brain would believe early on in recovery? Something to the effect of, I'm committed to my recovery and I'm taking daily action to move towards uh be living a life full of integrity mm-hmm. right so easy to you just kind of create a little bridge there make it believable that is the statement then that you put on your mirror that you say to yourself over and over and over again and when you, as soon as you feel discouraged and be like i'm a horrible human being because you know my wife is triggered today and i'm really sad you immediately go back to you can you if that's tr- maybe you feel like that's true at that moment you mm-hmm. can say and I am working towards, I am daily, you know, I'm engaging in daily activities to work towards becoming someone of integrity. And so you're replacing and you're creating new patterns, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then for the betrayed spouse, it's like, man, we really, we really struggle with our self-confidence after this. It really, it really feel like, I, I don't care how pretty you are. You probably think I'm totally ugly, right? Or I'm totally whatever. So we want to get back to the point where we feel confident in our bodies, right? So the idea there would be that at the end of recovery, we go, we go, I'm an amazing, beautiful, confident, strong human being who is living a life that I'm totally happy with. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, week one, are you freaking kidding me? No way I'm yeah, going to believe yeah, that, right? right? But what can I say early on in recovery? Something to the effect of I'm making daily choices to work towards becoming a strong, confident individual. And today I am. XYZ, right? Mm-hmm. Something to that effect, right? right? So you you take the goal, you create a bridge, you create a, a believable statement that your mind will accept, and you begin to repeat that over and over and over and over again, bringing that into your reality so that then you can be, you know, three months later, reassess, build a new one. What's, what's the next step? Mm-hmm. Eventually, you'll get to that place where you can go, I am amazing. I am strong. I am confident. I've done, look at this. I'm a badass. Like all this stuff that I've done, right? Um, but it, you can do you can't do that on day one, right? right? 
So that's just something I think with all this personal development, self growth, yeah. um, you know, mindset work, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yes, affirmations, but but do them in a way that works for you. And, and I think you know nothing nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens just by poofing into the air. You know, everything that you do that that is creative um, has an intentionality behind it, and that's what you're kind of going through. Is like, hey, you got to do this, and like culture creation in an organization, it's not it doesn't come around accidentally. It's actually intentional. And so with all of these things, your own recovery, moving through the the hard times that may come, you have to move with an intention mm-hmm. and, and it's going to help you move through that. And all of this self-development stuff helps you move, working with coaches and, mm-hmm. and all of these different things. It's, it's really powerful in that direction. Well, this wasn't planned, but you mentioned coaches. So speaking of... <laughs> For betrayed spouses who need support and one-on-one coaching, I do offer that. And so there are some links in the show notes. You can book a call. Um, we can see if uh, working together is a good fit. But this is kind of the work that we do. We Once we've established the foundation of safety in the relationship and you have boundaries and you, you feel safe in your relationship moving forward, working together um, in the Phoenix transformation process that I guide women through, this is what we do. We really work on the mindset. We really work on the subconscious mind. We work in busting the self-limiting beliefs that I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. I'm, you know, all these kinds of things. We actually process um, recurring triggers and looping thoughts and all all this kind of stuff. If you have conflict in your life, um, you know, part of me wants this, part of me wants this, or I want to move forward, but I'm really feeling stuck. We integrate those parts and we help, which helps your body and your mind make uh, decisions of feeling more confident in those. So that is the work that I do with my clients. If you're interested, click the link uh, below. But uh, if, even if it's not me, we, we always are going to encourage anyone on the recovery journey, please work with a professional because this stuff is not easy to do on your nope. own. And we really do believe that healing um, comes from working with people that you trust and diving into a community of people that can understand you. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this podcast interesting or helpful, it would mean so much if you leave a five-star review or post a screenshot and share on social media. We are on a mission to share the message of recovery and you can help get the word out. If you know a friend who could use this podcast, please share it.